It's 4 p.m. Stand up. It's count time. It's time for every man and woman to stand up and be counted. I'm Brother L.D. Azobra. I'd like to welcome you to another edition of Count Time Podcast. I have someone here. I, did, I guess I've been chasing him for quite some time now, but I finally ran him down. Everybody. I finally ran him down. Uh, someone I met ooh, several months back, and I, was, I f- had an interest in you, what you was doing, and I just... Something about your presence, I, I, it just, just captivated me. I have here today, Mr. Richard Sexton. Welcome to Countdown. Thanks for having me. Glad you know, to be here. I'm, I'm, I mean, de- we're delighted to have you here because you know, it's kind of the first, that's what was interesting to me, like, why, why would I have any interest in, in him anyway? Why would I have an interest in this guy? Because you are what you call artists. You call it in the word of art, but it's a photographer. Yeah. So you got into photography. But I guess I, when I saw your work the day we was at this activity in Point Capit Parish. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Yes, for the exhibit that Kathy Hambrick uh, curated there. Yeah, in the, the parish. Yeah, and they also, uh, they, it's the day they had. They commemorated the com- plaque the for plaque. Miss Jane Pittman Oak. Uh, at, uh, in, in honor of Ernest Gaines, who yes. had incorporated that uh, tree in his his book, the autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman. Yeah, that he wrote sitting under that 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 past that he tree every day. That, that tree he every grew day. Grew up on River Lake Plantation, mm-hmm. and there was a store on that Lakeland Road where the oak tree was beside the road, and he would, as a child, he would walk by that tree, which is a monumental tree. It's, it's huge. It's a huge, big old oak tree. Yeah, it's a big Louisiana oak. And so he, it factored in the book that he would write as an adult years later. And it really, now you heard that just a couple of weeks ago, several weeks ago, someone stole the plaque that was uh, was sitting they, up there. They took it? They, they, they took it out of the ground? Out of the ground. My gosh! Well, it's gone. <laughs> they got well, a, have to get another one. I don't know what that's I, about. I have I, not heard about that. I haven't. You missed that? I, I missed it. I haven't. Uh, nobody. All my friends in Point Capi. Nobody. Uh, nobody said anything about it. So, how long ago was this? It was only. It happened in. It's okay. We in November. It happened in late October. I would guess. Okay, so just. A just happened. Weeks ago. I would say in the last two three weeks. Oh, Somebody stole a, the, uh, the, the, the commemorative plaque that was put out on behalf of. Yeah, the, that's a Louisiana Ernest landmark. Uh, uh, <clears throat> on, a, on, a, on a great man who done uh, who's a powerful and uh, prolific writer. You know. Oh yeah, that he, he was. Did. He was. Uh, he was one of the great writers of Louisiana. Oh, yes, so, and so uh, you know, so I don't know why they took the plaque now. Rumor has it, the people selling the house. <clears throat> The plaque is behind the tree. Yeah, the that's, that's the a house, house right there. Yes. And they said maybe the people selling the house wanted to get that plaque removed to make sure they sell that house. I don't know. <laughs> I have no clue. Well, I don't know about uh, that. But that's that that plaque is on public property. It's not on, <laughs> you know. Well, uh, it's in front of the house. Or it's you know. in the right of way for but the highway. Because those kind of plaques, you have to have like a torch or something to 
take that thing down. You can't just use a you know, I don't regular know, tube. I'm, I'm surprised they managed to get it down without well, somebody seeing it. Well, the plaque is going well. I, I, you, did you take a picture in front of that plaque? I did. I did. I have it on my website. Oh, so you okay. can see it there. <laughs> go go, to, go and, to Richard. Uh, what's your, what's your web, website there? Buddy? It's richardsextonstudio.com. So a, go there and look at my news blog. And uh, it's only a, a couple of posts down from the top because it was fairly recently that mm -hmm. that, that was... And that was it, March it was, or April, May? Yeah, spring of this year is when they um, had the plaque installed and they had the commemoration ceremony in uh, New Roads. Now, I can't believe no one called and informed you. <laughs> but anyway, well, that's you know, I'm, I'm sure I was going to hear about it sooner, sooner or later. But uh, I haven't been up to I haven't been up to New Roads since uh, since the plaque went missing. So. When that's when I that's when I first you know met you had a chance to see your work and it was just I was impressed with it and I'm not really an art type of guy you know I'm I love taking pictures myself to captivate tree but I'm I'm not one who do it for art uh -huh. but when I saw your work I mean I just the way you capture the children the community the history of that area uh -huh. I'm like I mean anyway what drew you to, to how that happened well the the, the photography that I did that was in the, uh, the exhibit, People, Porches, and Places, and which is on permanent display. So if you go visit New Roads, it's, you can see it uh, in, in the Poydras Center on uh, False River Road. It used to be an uh, elementary school or high school? I school. believe it was a high school. It is now the uh, site for the Point Capit Historical Society and they do a lot of events there, and they have that exhibit space where it's yeah. permanently on view. Uh, but I believe it was a high school, originally. Okay. It's the old high school. But I did that photography originally for a book that was uh, instigated by a good friend of mine, Randy Harrelson. Who used the term instigated. Well, that's right. He, he, it, was his, it was his idea. He wanted to do a book on Point Capit Parish, um, he lived, he and his partner, in the Lejeune House, which is a famous historical building in New Roads. And um, he, uh, he approached me to see if I would do the photography for that project. And I agreed because I think there's a fascinating history to that parish. And it is uh, one of the, uh, it's one of the three surviving original and, and, and French settlements in, in Louisiana. New Orleans, Natchitoches. And, and, and a lot and, of people still speak French there, too. They do. Yeah. They do. It, it, it has a strong uh, uh, French Creole heritage in, in that parish. So the, uh, the book is New Roads and Old Rivers is, is the name, uh, which Old River is uh, uh, another former path of the Mississippi, and there's a lot of camps on it, and uh, it's, it's a recreational place in the parish. So it's named after the town of New Roads, and uh, really Old River is, is kind of a metaphor for, for Old River, False River, Mississippi River, which have right, all been right. together. And, and, and the Red River, too, is, is, uh, converges there uh, yeah. in, the, in the northern end of the parish. Right. So okay. a lot of rivers around there. And, and it's, a, it's a beautiful part of the country, you know, like this, this small community, mm -hmm. but it's such a beautiful, it sits, it sits on the, 
the uh, the river. You know, it does. Or the, you know, just to see how that that when you well, pull it the, up there. The, the, and False River. Yeah, the False which River, which really looks like it's uh, the Mississippi, yeah. and it was it but once it, was. But, but interesting, they call it False River. Yeah, it's <laughs> a, it's now a lake basically, but, yeah, but it yeah. has it has the shape and the um, the run of of a river. It, it, mm -hmm. it really you can you can sense that this was once part of the Mississippi right. River, yeah. and there are a lot of camps. People go there for fishing and water skiing and uh, recreation, and it's it's had that identity for a very long time. So, but how did you get connected with the, with with the historical society with the same guy? Well, that was through Randy Harrelson. Yeah. So the same he, guy. He brought me in. He was very involved with that organization. Now, now, what year did he do the book when you took the photo? Boy, I think the book came out in 2012. So I was working on it. Um, it might have been 2013. I can't remember that, now. But that, 2011, 2012, in that period, that, almost. That, that, a those, decade ago is when I did the photography. Those are photos are from, from, uh, from long before, right? Or you took those photos yourself? The contemporary photos I took. There okay. are a, a few photos and maps and so forth that are historical in nature. But all the contemporary photography was done uh, uh, like a decade ago. It's, okay. it's, it's recent. Well, you did a great job. You just well, did the something about thank it. You. you brought the town to life. Well, Point Capi is a wonderful subject. There are so many yeah. wonderful things there. Uh, Maison Chanel, the town of New Roads, many buildings that are on the National Register. Um, and uh, so there's a lot to work with. Well, you know, and I think what, what I saw, what, what I saw, you know, uh -huh. as a being a, someone of African descent, I saw inclusion in your work. Oh, yeah. You've got, you know, to, you've got to include everybody. You know, and, and that's what I, I, was, I was not used to seeing that from someone who didn't look like me. Well, right? the, the one thing and we really couldn't include there, although we did include the building uh, in Letsworth uh, where Buddy Guy went to school and where the post office was, is kind of the only structure in Letsworth. Okay. But he would, he would be the most famous contemporary person from Point Capi. Uh, and uh, a lot of people don't know that. He's frequently attributed to having been from Baton Rouge, but right. he was from Point Capi Parish. He's from Letsworth. Yeah. He's from Letsworth. His brother just passed two weeks ago. Is Sam, that right? Sam yeah. guy. Yeah. yeah. His brother just passed. So I heard he's not doing, but it's not doing as well. Yeah, he's, he's getting up there. Yeah, he's up there now. He's, he's up, up there, there in age. But he's a legendary blues man. He's known the world over. Uh, also, General Russell Honore oh, is yeah. a native of uh, Point Capi grew up, uh, uh, I believe, on the island, uh, which is uh, Jarrow is. Uh, Ernie Cado's family, uh, the Cadors, are, are from Point Capi. Now, I can't remember his individual history. If he was from there, I, I want to say he what grew up in New Orleans, but his family history goes back to Point Capi also. Okay. Well, I know I just did a, uh, a podcast with Coach Roger Cado. Oh, uh -huh. I, I did not ask, was they kidding? I did uh -huh. not ask, was he kidding or Ernie? Well, I signed a book for uh, his first cousin, uh, who was a K-Door. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I don't know if they're all related, uh, but he's got relatives. He, uh, Ernie Cato has relatives in Point Capit mm -hmm. uh, okay. uh, today. So, so you're still connected to something about, you, you are connected to Well, Point you do a, you do a book about a place, you meet the people, 
you see the houses, uh, all of that, uh, you know, becomes part of your life because you did, you did a project there. And uh, the, uh, the, the people of Point Capi are, are very proud of, of uh, uh, and we've already mentioned Ernest Gaines, of course, uh, who grew up in Point Capi, went off, uh, became a famous writer, but in the end he returned. And he bought land on, uh, uh, on River Lake Plantation, where he, he grew up as a child, and yeah. and lived there, and and, and, and died wife, only very yeah, recently. Yeah, and his wife Diane still yeah. lives there. Yeah, she's from New Orleans originally, but yeah, she still lives now, there. But now you are from Atlanta, Georgia. No, I'm not from Atlanta. Okay. I, I'm from. I lived in Atlanta. You lived in Atlanta. You I went to school there. Yeah, I went to school there. I lived there for about. Uh, three or four years in the early 70s. Oh, okay. But I grew up in a little town called Colquitt, Georgia, which is way down in the Ooh, southwest hold on, corner. Hold on, hold on. You got to spell out with that. It's C-O-L-Q-U-I-T-T, which is a person's name. It was a, uh, it was, the, the town was named after. Now, give us a point of reference, because I never yeah, heard that. Yeah, it well, it's, uh, it's smaller than New Roads. I mean, you would have to have been through there for some reason, or you wouldn't have, uh, you wouldn't have heard of it. It's about 1,800 people, farming community, right down in the corner of the state, very near Florida and oh, Alabama. Florida. Okay, then, okay. The, the line there. Okay, but, so, but you're still from Georgia. Uh, so I grew up in Georgia. Georgia. I moved to Louisiana from San Francisco. Okay, where did you go to college at? I went to Emory University in Atlanta. Oh, you, you did go to Atlanta. So that's, uh, yeah. that was your so that was, in Atlanta. Yeah, I was living in Atlanta when I was in school. And I lived there for, uh, and worked there for about a year and a half after I graduated. We did read out bringing up Atlanta because that's how we had a conversation that day. Because you, 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 you were telling me that you, you came out of Atlanta. Right. I told you I played for the Falcons. That's right. You mentioned that you had <laughs> so, played for the Falcons. So, and when I was a kid, the Falcons were the, you know, the team that you rooted for if you were from Georgia. You right. Know? Uh, and uh, Atlanta Braves for baseball, Atlanta Falcons for football. But you, but you moved on from that. That's <laughs> right. Because you, yeah. you are in Louisiana, in New Orleans yeah, I'm a now. Fan now. That's saying. right. Have been for a long time. Yeah. Okay, then. No, so, so, you, so you don't claim the Dirty Birds at all? No, come on, no, Richard. not really. That was so long ago, and the, the, it's been so long since I lived in uh, Georgia. And of course, they're a hated rival, rival of the Saints. So, uh, <laughs> you know. Uh, and the Saints have been getting the better of them recently. Right. So, um, yeah. so, so I'm, right. not a fa I'm not a Falcons fan anymore. All right, all right. But yeah. I, I was also, That's a story. You I, stick with it, huh? I lived in San Francisco, and when I lived there, the, the 49ers and the Raiders were uh, oh, in okay. Oakland uh, during the time that I lived there in the, in the 80s. They accounted for a lot of winning football. And Super Bowl wins. Oh, yeah, they, they, I mean, that was a dynasty. Both I mean, of those. Oakland was a dynasty. Then 49ers became a dynasty. Almost immediately thereafter. Uh, yeah. So, they, so they, the West Coast dominated for quite a few years. And they kind of changed football, too. Yeah. That, that, uh, their approach to the game. Uh, those oh, yeah. Teams. What they call it? They call it the West Coast offense and yeah. stuff like that. Yeah, that was kind of happening. But now you, you didn't play sports. But you no, sport, not really. But you're a sports enthusiast. Yeah, that's pretty good. Uh -huh. that's, that's pretty good. Uh -huh. Well, I did. I played in the band, in the marching band. So you know, for football halftime, that was that was uh, that's about as close to the game as I got. <laughs> <laughs> but you was on the field. Okay? I was on the field. You was on the. That's progress. 
But you know, so let, let's finish talking about your uh, your travels and how you end up in Louisiana, in New Orleans, and been a stable here since how long you been here now? Since ninety one. So it's since been thirty one years. You've been here for since ninety one. Yeah, since ninety one. Okay. <clears throat> so I understand why you appreciate small communities because you came from a small small community. That's right. But but what was your travel like when you went to Emory, and then what happened after Emory? Well, I. Uh, Went to art school just for a year. I dropped out. I didn't like art school, but that, that was the reason I initially moved to San Francisco. And I kind of thought I was going to leave the South uh, and, and live in California. <laughs> and I love San Francisco and the culture out there and everything. Um, but uh, two small kids um, uh, growing up in San Francisco, even then, in the 80s was an extremely expensive place to be raising a family and uh, I didn't have any family in California other than my, my own. Uh, we had moved out there, uh, I was married and um, but had no other connection to California. And well, what brought mother, you to California? Then? Well the art school, school. Art school. Uh, okay. art school. Uh, yeah okay. and also the attraction, I wanted to live in a city, and I thought San Francisco was just kind of the most European city uh, that, um, that I was aware of. Of course, at that point in my life, I hadn't been to every American city, still haven't, but I've been to a lot of them. And I, I still think of San Francisco as being a very uh, special place. So it was an attraction to that city and the fact that uh, the art school that I wanted to go to well, was what, located there. What was the name of the art school? San Francisco Art Institute, okay. which it actually it closed recently. But it had been a very important art school on the West Coast uh, historically. And so uh, that's what brought me to San Francisco. And it was also a place where I felt like I could start my career. And in fact, I did that. And I lived there for 13 years. So you knew you wanted to get into photography oh, yeah. at a young age. Yes. Okay, now you got to go back and tell us how did well, you Well, I, I bought it. I decided as a teenager, bought my first uh, sort of professional grade camera when I was um, 18. Uh, immediately became uh, just taken with uh, photography as a means of creative expression. And. Uh, uh, I just decided very impulsively, yeah, this is, this is what I want to do. I can travel, I can see the world, I can photograph. When I was growing up in Colquitt, a small town, we didn't have art galleries, we didn't have museums. Uh, art wasn't taught in school, but my parents subscribed to what are now referred to as the big picture magazines, Life and Look and National Geographic. It was, it was a big deal then, and they must have subscribed to like 20 magazines uh, a month, it seems like. So y'all brought the culture to the house through that's magazines. That's right, and that's, that's, that's how I experienced uh, uh, photography. And I think even then, I, I was taken with those, uh, uh, those photo essays in Life and Look and National Geographic, and uh, that, that represented art to me. That was a way that I could experience uh, 
the art of photography, even though I lived in a little small farming town that didn't have it in any other way, but it came in through the mail. So uh, that, that was a major inspiration to, uh, to me wanting to be a photographer. Now so you come from a small or large family? So I was an only child. Only yeah, child. Only child. Now, if you go back a few generations, the family was huge. Now, now give us a little. But now, the Sexton, did that come from the the, the group, the Anglo-Saxons? No, <laughs> well, no. The, actually, my my father was Irish. Uh, they, they it sounds like a very English name, and it was. They're Anglo-Saxons and they're Irish Saxons, oh. and it was originally Shesnan or O'Shesnan was another variant. But they changed it to Sexton for reasons I don't know, for a very long time ago, I guess, to maybe sound more English. The English wanted oh, the Irish maybe. to have, you know, be part of the club, even though they were, <laughs> were kind of indicating all along they were, that they didn't they were, really they, want. They were ostracized. <laughs> they, 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 they didn't really want to belong. Oh. Uh, but uh, it, was, uh, it was some of that. So it's a very English sounding name that happens to be an Irish name. Hmm. Okay, yeah. okay, but that's just got that sound, you know. Yeah, yeah, but it, it's not. They were never, they were never custodians for the Anglican Church or any of that. <laughs> uh, they had no no part of that. Um, uh, and uh, but it is one of those now, coincidences. You, now you you the only child, so your your mother and father they come from a small family too. Well, no, my my father was one of five kids. My mother was one of. Uh, uh, four. Now, what's so, your and, then, and then the generation before that, I think my my uh, father's mother, uh, she was a crow, and the crows came from the same part of Ireland as the Sextons okay. did. Uh, I think she was one of 18 kids, something like that. I don't even know how many okay. uh, there were, but there were a bunch. And, uh, it was, and same thing with my mother's. You know, in the 19th century, families were huge. And, but by, by the time I was born in 54, they'd gotten a lot smaller. So uh, you have two children? I have two children. What's their name? And two Where grandchildren, Adrian and Claire. And they both live in the UK currently. They live the in UK? London. Yeah. Mm -hmm. okay. And my, my older daughter is Adrian, and she's married to a Brit. And so uh, she, has, she has two kids. A Brit as a British? A British, yeah. <laughs> okay, I, you, know, I, last, so, you know, Louisiana people's last name are Brits. So. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's <laughs> so right. I got to yeah. make sure we know what you're talking about. Yeah. So, she, so she's married to home. a British citizen. So, so she's not coming a back. Londoner. Doesn't look like it. Now, my younger daughter is just there temporarily uh, and uh, thought it would be a, a good adventure to live in London where her sister is. She has the two nieces there. So she and her husband are there, uh, just kind of on an uh, adventure, I would say. But uh, anyway, we'll see how that goes. They could end up being uh, permanently over there, too. You never know. Okay. You never know what these kids uh, are going to do. Okay, but so that's, you come from a small family of one. So your life was in, encapsulated inside the little, inside your own life. Yeah, I had Did a lot of cousins. The extended family was kind of large, okay. but I didn't have any siblings, no. So it, what, what is, I came from a family of eight. Eight, yeah. So, you know, we was always fussing, fighting, uh -huh. you know, arguing over something, uh, playing yeah. together. It was just, we kept a lot of excitement, a lot of, a lot of energy. Yeah. And you learned a lot when you got that mm -hmm. many siblings. So, you by yourself, just your mom and dad. So, are you a small a brat? Well, um, 
I don't know if I would put it in that pejorative of term, but you know, you are different when you're an only child, I think. The fact that you don't have siblings, you're growing up in a smaller household, it's a different experience. And so I think it does kind of shape who you are, what your interests are, and things like that are, are, are determined by that. Now, what your mom and dad thought about you wanting to be a photographer? That, well, to, to, I, to, oh, at that time, that was not a work, a job. That you know, not so you much. Know, no, they they thought I would do, and I was an engineering major for for uh, the first part of it in college. Uh, my father had died. He 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 died when I was eighteen. Mm, okay. So he didn't live to see my interest in in photography. Now his brother was the one who ran the photo lab at the University of Georgia. He was he ran Athens. the photo lab. He ran the photo lab, okay. not the photo department. But back in the day, schools would have a photo lab on campus, and that's where the pictures were taken for the ID cards, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, they did all the microfiche work for the library, that kind of thing. And a lot of photography that would appear in the annuals in the, in the college uh, uh, yearbooks. So um, that's what he did. And he taught me how to process film and a little bit about photography because that's, that's what he did. Uh, that was my, my father's younger brother. And so uh, uh, there was that, but my father didn't live to see me uh, interested in photography. And I'm sure my mother, who was the uh, guidance counselor in the high school, um, I think she would have thought that some sort of profession like engineering would have been the, uh, the higher calling. And, uh, but we always were very supportive of, uh, once I said I wanted to do photography, uh, they, uh, my mother was very supportive of, of that. Because so I think she was of the philosophy that you should do the thing that you love doing, whatever that is. So, but what point in time you figure, I can make a living doing this? Probably by my mid-twenties. Uh, I, I kind of got disillusioned with it during the art school process. That's, that's kind of a long story. But I then explored uh, other things as, a possi as career possibilities because photography is a difficult thing to break into. Let's face it. I mean, it's one of these professions that uh, is very competitive, uh, and it's difficult. It's difficult. The vast majority of people that say, "Oh, I want to do this," like so many creative professions, everybody wants to do it. Only a few people succeed at successfully monetizing the experience. Just like music and everything else. Music, anything else. A lot of people look at it. It can always be a great hobby, and it could be an avocation that you might enjoy throughout your life, but you may or may not be able to monetize it. I was fortunate that I was able to monetize it, make a living from it. And so w what helped you to tap into the, the ability to say, I can make a living? How, wh what happened? What, what did you see? Okay, probably it was the, the um, the fact that I really didn't want to do anything else. I mean, it's like if everything else seems like it's, it's just not for you, 
you then had you just to put all your eggs in that basket and say, so, you know, I got to make this work yeah. somehow because I don't want to do anything else. You go for broke. Go for broke. Yeah, yeah. And and you have to you have to really want it. I once heard it was uh, a scout, I think, a baseball scout, as I recall, when they were asking him, well, how do you how do you recognize talent and, and pick it? And he said, well, there's there's two things that I wish I knew that you can't know. No. And uh, the first was, how good is he going to get? And how bad does he want to play in the major leagues? Because when you're looking at high schoolers and college kids, I mean, they're at one level. Are they, are they going to get better? Or is that as good as they're ever going to be uh, at that level? Uh, have they peaked? And are they really willing to make sacrifices to succeed in, in the major leagues. And so those are, the, those are the two things I don't know. If I knew that, I could pick them every time. Oh, okay. But, but oh. you can't. So I think you could apply that to just about anything, any profession. It's like, okay, this is what I want to do, but how good am I going to get at it? And how bad do I want it? And those, those two things are really going to be a determining factor in whether or not you succeed, I think. Yeah. So there's no magic wand, there's no... Maybe for some people, but not for most people. But you hear about, you, you hear about prodigy talent all the time. Like there's people in, in the world of music who they can hear a melody and then they can play it back immediately. They've got that gift. There's people that have a similar gift when it comes to writing. They can just, the words just flow onto the page, right, straight from their head. And they can, at, very, at, at lightning speed, they can put it to paper. Um, so there, there is prodigy talent out there, but it's exceedingly rare, and I think in all the creative professions, there's only a handful of people who have it at that level. Yes. I don't think I'm one of them. <laughs> <laughs> there's some people who just get what they call gifted. They're just and there's gifted. those who have the talent. If they work hard enough, yeah. they can... It's, it's like being a great athlete, yeah. too. You're, you, you have that physicality, but you also have to have the smarts to go with it. And, mm -hmm. and well, I'm glad to hear you say that. Most people don't equate smarts well, with athletics. <laughs> so I, that's I know. Exactly you've got, well... Look, I'll be late to hear that, Richard. There's never been a 320-pound shortstop in a major in, in baseball, right? That it may be a lineman in football, but doesn't have the right physicality for that position, mm -hmm. and uh, that's kind of the way it is in sports. But you've also got to understand how to uh, uh, play the game, and well, you, anticipate, well, you know, and well, do all the things that you have to do to put yourself in a position to succeed. That's right. And I'm, I'm elated to hear you say that because most people do not equate just what you, what you just said. Mm -hmm. uh, the, uh, any level of intelligence with sports. But I know when you're playing football, what I learned is that there were several things. I had to learn uh, angles and uh, what you call them thing. I, forgot, I came up with other terms. But angles was the key thing in sports. Now, we always talk about, even in conversation, you say, I wonder what angle they coming from. Because <laughs> uh -huh, yeah. you've got to figure it out where they coming from in a conversation. 
Yeah. Or what's their angle on this? You know, mm-hmm. and football's the same way. It's about angles. Whoever get the best angles, yeah, going win. Particularly, and you're trying to yeah. catch somebody that's ahead of you. Catch somebody, or even get in the best place. Yeah. Because you know, if if how do you call that? If I'm squared up, <clears throat> and my feet is not properly situated, I'm I'm going backwards. Yeah. So I have to have the ability to to shift the body and shift it, put it in position to where I, I have the. Uh, I have the edge or the better angle yeah. on that, on that yeah. person coming at me. So, yeah. you know, but you got to be able to, you know, you're thinking and moving at the same time. Ain't somebody oh, coming sure. and somebody yeah. coming to hit, you know, somebody yes. coming to get you. You know, you, you ain't just running freely. You might get blocked when you're trying to. <laughs> no matter who you are. You got the you great are, angle, but you get no blocked. No matter who you are, somebody, somebody is assigned to you. Every play, almost yeah. every play, somebody assigned. So that, that's pretty interesting. But let's go back to you where you figuring this thing out. You say, okay. Photography is what I want to do at a young, at the age of twenty something. Yeah. yeah, and I'm gonna make a living. You have a family. I didn't have kids at that point. Yeah, but, I had a wife. But had a wife. Uh, and uh, kids were not on the. I wasn't making enough money to really think about having kids yet. They came along uh, about five or six years after that. After I was, you know beginning to make a decent enough living in photography and my wife was also working in, in corporate jobs so uh, but that didn't come along until you know late 20s early 30s but I was uh, very much uh, attuned to trying to make a living in photography um, and as a photographer I had worked on my first job out of college I was a printer in a black and white lab uh, at a camera store. That's what I did, which is not really photography. It's part of the photography industry, but you're not being paid to create images. You're just printing other people's images. And I kind of realized that that wasn't for me because I wanted to go out and explore the world, see the world, photograph the world. And here I was stuck in the dark all day, you know, working in the dark room. So you're, you're in the most insular environment you can conceive of, uh, which is not conducive to creating your own photography. But I did that for a year, and it was a good experience. But I, re- I really did want to make a living working as a photographer, working for magazines. And as it turns out, in my particular case, I uh, became an architectural photographer. So I worked for architects, designers, the publications that focused on uh, those subjects as well. Occasionally would uh, be working for um, like furniture designers, lighting designers, people like that. Okay, did so. you choose that or you just saw that's where the money was? Which one, which, did you have an interest in that? No, I had an interest in that. It was the kind of uh, subject that, uh, I'm a kind of a, a methodical in the way that I photograph, so photograph, Architecture is a very cooperative subject uh, for you. It sits, what, what that, it holds still, it holds still, <laughs> and all you have to do is figure out the best composition, the best lighting, those sorts of things, and that's okay. that's sort of what I that was my strength. I'm not a real people person, and if you're going to do portraits or fashion, you, you really you, have you, to be. You, you have to engage you with might, the you subject. You don't think you're a people person. Not really, no. Not in the. You would. You would think I would, the opposite. I would. I would, I would beg the difference <laughs> because the day I met you, you was engaging uh-huh. the people that was there. Uh huh. I mean. In, well, maybe in, that's just the rationale. 
but I think that the um, there's some people that can do that kind of immediately. Okay. I'm fi I'm fine if um, if there's sort of a common uh, purpose to the interaction. Oh, like, like that was your work. So you well, it was a work. It was an event, and yeah. uh, people are there at it. But it could just as easily be a board meeting at work or something like that. Mm -hmm. If it's a purpose-driven interaction, then I'm fine with it. But in, in terms of just uh, meeting people in bars or on the bus or oh, on the okay, street okay, and okay. immediately engaging them in conversation and so forth, no, I'm, I'm kind of too shy for that kind of interaction. But the photographers who are really good at that kind of people photography, they tend to be people who do engage strangers very readily and make them feel right at home immediately and trusting. So that would mean that you knew that you need to deal with inanimate, inanimate objects, how do you say that word? That's right, inanimate <laughs> objects were good for me. Still life, landscape, architecture, those are the subjects that I tended to photograph. And that's kind of what you just... But I did, there were some, there were some photographs of people that are in well, the, well, the Point Cavie book, for instance, in well, the Rotino Rivers, a little bit. So I would do that in, in certain contexts, but portraiture was never my uh, forte or calling in photography. It was the other stuff. Now, so what would be your choice? If you, had a, if you, you said, oh, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. What would that be? The, the photographic subjects? Well, I think I am, enjoy uh, within the framework of the architecture, I really like to tell the story of the, uh, the culture, the society that created that environment. Like when you go to the French Quarter of New Orleans uh, and you see this incredible urban experience there, um, the story behind how that neighborhood, that ensemble of buildings, came to be what it is and why it's different than so many other places that you might visit and how it's um, really kind of un-American in a way. I mean, it doesn't look like your typical American town because right. it isn't. Very unique. Yeah, it's, it's unique. Yeah. So telling that story is, well, why is it unique? Why is it here? Who are the people that created it? Who has lived in these buildings over time? And why were they there? And what purpose did these buildings serve over time? There's a lot of history that can be told, and I've, I've, I've done that in, uh, in some of the books that I've done on Louisiana subjects. I think the, one of the reasons that I'm here and that I enjoy being in Louisiana so much is the unique history of this place. It is not your typical um, storyline that most American places uh, are all about. It has a very different history. Well, I think and, I and, and, Georgia offered a lot of that too, though, wouldn't it? It does, but it's more Georgia was, you know, the 13th colony. It was really part of that Anglo um, history of the the original 13 colonies oh, okay, okay. and um, but it did it, 
it did have a long history. Because it was one of the original states uh, once the, the uh, republic was founded. So it, it, has a, it has a long, interesting history, and it has places in it, like Savannah, for instance, has uh, a, a lot of commonalities with, uh, with New Orleans, I would say. Um, but I didn't live in that part of it uh, either. Uh, so um, I, I think that, uh, and, and cities have always intrigued me more. As I said, I grew up in a small town, and small towns are interesting in a way, and I certainly have no regrets about having been from a very small place. Um, but cities are the places, I think, that offer the richest cultural experience. All the things that go on with music and the arts and um, um, the kinds of interaction and common interest that you find once you've got a critical mass of folks. For instance, the photo community in New Orleans is, is uh, a very vibrant, robust community. It would be hard for a tiny little town to have a similar. Uh, there's just not enough people, not enough people doing photography to make that happen. But also, let's deal with the, you know, what I would call the, the things that make you know, you can have everything going on in New Orleans you want to, but you take the people out, you have nothing. Uh -huh. So the people of New Orleans, the people of Louisiana, are interesting yes. people. Yes. Is that I would have to say, as from the people I came from, the different African tribes that was brought here brought so much uniqueness and difference mm -hmm. in what they do. Uh, not just the music and dance, the food, you know, mm -hmm. Uh, the culture when I, when I grew up in a small town, it was a we had a culture that kept you excited, kept you engaged, kept you a part of your own, your community that you didn't really go have to go look because that time we couldn't go on the other side of town, but we didn't need yes. to uh -huh. <laughs> because we, it was all happening on our side of town. Yes. You know, we played the sports, and you saw. <clears throat> I mean, I watched these guys. I would watch these older. Uh, men back in the days playing baseball because football was just something that was came later uh -huh. football yeah, was not was baseball early, was yeah. a thing right and these guys would entertain you at a baseball game you know we go to the baseball game you got uh, one guy he up the bat and he get ready to bat he doing some different things with the bat or he get up there to bat you know he swing the bat with one arm and hit a yeah. home run uh -huh. <laughs> you know what I'm sure saying? Showboating a little bit. Yeah, yeah you know, but that's mm -hmm. the, the community where I came from. That's what you do. Yeah. You, you know, it's almost like going to Apollo. You know, yeah. in our community, you don't go to Apollo. And Apollo is everywhere in our community. It mm -hmm. just so happened it was in, in New York inside of this theater. Uh -huh. But Apollo was everywhere. You had to perform. No matter what you was doing in our community, you had to perform. You had to outperform yeah. the other, other mm -hmm. person. So, you know, that's kind of way. And that's what New Orleans is is perform, people performing mm -hmm. all the time, then the people is what who makes, I mean, the buildings are beautiful down in the French Quarter, but really it's Spanish but architecture. It really does, it, it, does, it does take the people. Yeah, it, it, it does take the yeah, people. It calls it the French Quarter, but the Spanish, Spanish slash African architecture. Very little French architecture yeah, left yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, that's right. So I was talking about the people. So let's, I, I'm kind of interested in what you, but I know you say you don't do poetry, but, <clears throat> You can leave the, you can leave all the animals, all this, without the people, it's, 
you're saying that Atlanta didn't have that, Florida didn't have that. Well, it certainly had people, you know, I mean, all these places have I mean, people. Uh, but San Francisco didn't have that. Is What was the difference there? Well, I think, uh, again, it comes down to the culture and the, the, the history of the place and the fact that it, it was unique, but it also there's a certain amount of luck, I think, when it comes to, uh, and this is true of all great urban places. I mean, not every city is like uh, New Orleans or, you know, in, in, in bigger, older places, London, Paris, and, uh, and, and say New York, they all have a character mm -hmm. to them and a rarity to them, the way they are uh, in kind of this league of their own. And a lot of times it's just, it's, it's uh, fortuitousness that that happened. They could have been much more average and much more like a typical city somewhere. But in, in New Orleans case, it really was this little, I think of it as this, this piece of the Caribbean that is marooned in North America by <laughs> geopolitical accident. It really has that feel. If you go, if, if you go to Haiti or to uh, Cuba uh, or uh, Jamaica, any of the places in the Caribbean, you see, you see uh, a culture and environments that will remind you of New Orleans. And that's why a lot of uh, Haitians uh, are, are, are well, here. Well, and, and it is. That's a big part of the Creole population uh, in New Orleans. They, they were immigrants from Haiti after the revolution. And, and you know what? It's, large, it's got a large population of Haitis in Louisiana. Where is it? New Roads. In New Roads, yeah. <laughs> you didn't know that? That's why they speak Where? French. A lot of, a lot a lot of, of people speak French. Well, I certainly knew about the Creole tradition, but I didn't know specifically the origins of the Creole mm -hmm. population. A lot, of, a lot of them are from, family are from, from Haiti. Haiti. So you, and, and you. Well, that's true too and, in, in New and, Orleans. And you, and for whatever reason, you were drawn to that. Yeah, that's right. That culture, that, those, that people. So yeah. that, that's interesting. And you can see it. You can see, and uh, when I was in Haiti photographing for a project, I was surprised. I mean, their, their funeral processions are very similarly organized with the brass band leading the way uh, to the cemetery. Um, and, uh, Parading is, is uh, a huge thing in Haiti. They have, a parade is the way that they publicly celebrate things. I even saw a parade where everyone in the parade and leading the parade were uh, missing limbs. So they were parading even though they were, it was on one leg they or one They celebrated arm too, they, they, Yeah, celebrated. they were, uh, uh, that, that was what the parade was about showing how, yeah, we, we're, you know, uh, we've got these disabilities here, but we can still get out and strut our stuff and, and uh, uh, be a part of the, the public spectacle of the parade. So those kinds of things, you can sense that, that this is a cultural similarity here. This is where some of these things have a common origin. And uh, that's, that's unique. And New Orleans is very fortunate in that so many places, like if you go to St. Augustine, Florida, you can see some very similar architecture to New Orleans. What's missing are the people.
the lineage of the people. Okay. The people in St. Augustine today are not descendants of the founders, of the people that first settled that place. They all got displaced or died out over time. But in New Orleans and in South Louisiana, that, that continuity is there. There are people. Look in the phone book. Nobody has a phone book anymore, but there's, <laughs> there is, you will see okay. the French names and the okay. Spanish names. Uh, oh, in, in, in Florida, you're talking about? No, I'm talking about here. Oh, in Louisiana. Oh, yeah, the French and Spanish. No, you'll, yeah, you'll yeah. see Spanish names in Florida, yeah. but oh, they, yeah. are, they are a modern immigrant community okay. that's only been there over the last uh, several decades. I mean, the, the oldest Hispanic community in, uh, in Florida is Ybor City uh, in uh, Tampa area. That's where they had the cigar factory. Uh, and the, those were the first... Uh, Latin immigrants that came into Florida. And that was quite a long time ago, but that was a kind of a small, isolated community. But now it's huge in Miami. There's a, there's a, a huge Latin community in Miami. And, and what I say about that, you know, New Orleans is the historical example. Miami is the modern example of two places that have this very tight connection to Latin America and the Caribbean. Um, but Miami is just a very new example of it. It's happened. In my lifetime, mm -hmm. I remember going to Miami as a kid, and it was it was completely different uh, kind of makeup of of constituents uh, and, and people who lived there then in the in the late '60s, early '70s, as opposed to today. But you know, also you know, the people of New Orleans it was it was, it's kind of showed itself at the time after the Katrina when everybody was displaced. There was nothing going on in New Orleans. A lot of Hispanic, Mexican came in to do the work, uh, yeah. and uh, and the people was had not have had not yet arrived. But we they realized that the the Spanish, Hispanic, and the Mexican could do the work, but they didn't have that culture. Well, they but they were from a related culture. Yeah, really. but it still they, didn't have they, that culture. They they fit in, and specifically in in New Orleans, you know, it's the Honduran community. Right, Honduras. And that's a that's a really tight that that's all from, uh, you know, it goes back to the United Fruit Company, which was based in um, New Orleans, and then the Panama Canal, of course. New Orleans was the the major benefactor of that canal and the trade with Latin America. I mean, it's you know, coffee and bananas and, and uh, grain going the other way, yeah, you know, and oil, of course. But that, that trade between um, Central America and New Orleans was an important connection there. It wasn't just that little bit of history of uh, the Spanish period um, where you have the surnames like Torres, Nunez, Perez, those those are names that go back to, they, they, they've been in um, Louisiana for those families for like 300 years, uh, virtually. And so that's the deep history. The more recent history has been the immigrant population uh, that has come in. There's been uh, predominantly uh, Honduran, but there's also Cuban and uh, uh, other other uh, Latin American and Caribbean places 
where they have come to uh, uh, New Orleans. Now let, let's get back to now your your work. So now you worked on quite a few books. I, I would quite a few with different. Yeah, and I think there's about it's between fifteen and twenty that Ooh. I've either authored, co-authored, or photographed. Oh, that's uh, a lot. Of so okay. yeah. So now that's people come knocking on your door saying, "Rich." Well, combination. Sometimes it's my idea, and I try to sell it. Uh, sometimes I'm knocking on the door, and sometimes my door is getting knocked off. Okay, dude. So it goes both ways. Now, what, what works best for you? It's best to, if I come up with the idea and uh, put a framework around it and uh, sell that idea to a publisher. Uh, that's going to give me the most control and um, okay, it's your the idea. most investment. The okay. most investment. Yeah, it's your idea. Now, is it? I know ain't nothing easy for nobody. So when you come with an idea, concept, whatever you want to call that, uh, that requires you to sit down and hash it out yourself yeah. first. That's right. Because only it's only a thought. They got to yeah. be put on paper. That's a, that can be a pretty pretty arduous process, then. Oh, well, it is, and that really is kind of what I do. I am a photographer, and I identify that way. But I also say, you know, I'm an author, uh, meaning that, um, you know, a lot of people think that author is synonymous with writer, but it, it isn't. I mean, uh, you oh, don't have right. to be a wordsmith. Never thought about that. Author right. is tied to authority, authorization. Oh, okay. It means that you have a knowledge of something um, in, in a given subject. And, Never and thought about so that. Like that. It's, the books that I author are, the primary narrative is always the visual one. And I do some of the writing sometimes to uh, um, uh, supplement the photography. So it, it, the, the projects vary in that way. My role varies. Sometimes I play a supporting role. I'm just doing the photography for somebody else's idea. And other times I'm I'm executing my own idea. But that, I think that's what is my um, forte, I would say. Um, I think I'm good at photography, but there's so are so many other people. I mean, and I'm not really any better than they are in that regard in terms of knowing how to take a picture. Um, but it's the way I can organize all those pictures to tell a bigger story. That's, that's kind of what I see. Has, yeah, okay. has propelled me uh, right. to do what I do and having done all these books. So it's, it's taking, the, taking the pictures, even if someone else has them, and telling a story with them. Yes, I'm a storyteller in the so end. I'm a storyteller. So, but you know, kudos to you today because you gave the word author <laughs> oh, well, you know, that, but that's a real common thing. I don't know how, I don't know how really important that is, kind of a pet peeve with me, because if you say, oh, I'm, I'm an author, they will say, well, what have you, what books have you written? Right. Uh, as though that domain is only the domain of the wordsmiths of the world, when in fact there are many other um, individuals 
people who have some level of authority on some subject that are doing books about it. And there, there are, and when you think about cartoonists, or some of my favorite uh, creative people, uh, what, what are they? I mean, they, they draw, but they also tell, they write. They have the little bubbles with, with text in there. So they're writing, they're drawing and writing, but what they're always doing is telling a story. Uh, and uh, that's, that's what I do. There, I'm, I'm more related to what cartoonists do or people that write graphic novels, however you would term them. That, that's, but I'm doing it with photography and words, and, and they're doing it with artwork and words. Well, you know, uh, cartoonists, which you mentioned, I guess to me it's almost like comedians when you write when you read the comic section. For comics, it is. Yeah. Some of them, like Robert Crumb, for instance, and he's he's doing pretty heady yeah. stuff, and but that's that's where the whole term graphic novels kind of okay. comes in. But for the most part, it is it's it's levity. It's it's all about the light note in the paper. That, yeah, that, but you know, but they got away with words too. Because they can't write a whole story. They got to have a quick punchline. That's right. That if you think about the New Yorker cartoons, yeah. for instance, they're legendary for, uh, for those. And so, yeah, they're, they're, that, that's, that's, a big, that's a big part of what be, they do. That, that's being creative with words. And it's also, um, it's, it's, it's an important expression in political speech, too. I never knew this, but it, the... Uh, Someone told me that you know the expression "nasty" comes from Thomas Nast, who was a, uh, a political satirist, cartoonist, uh, who was uh, uh, criticizing Tammany Hall and corruption in New York, and he was particularly uh, incisive and rough in the way he depicted people. So. When you say nasty, that means that you're as vicious as, as, as he was in his commentary. <laughs> well, so it can, it can go all kinds of, it can go different ways in terms of that. Now, you've been here since 91? Yes. In New Orleans? Yes. And you didn't go back to Georgia? Well, only to visit. When my mother was alive. She died in 2002, so I would go back frequently to see her. But I've never yeah, lived in Georgia. Once I left Atlanta and I moved to San Francisco, I've never resided in Georgia since then. Okay. It's only Louisiana. Now, how you settled on Louisiana? The Georgia boy. You say you lived in Florida, too? I do. Well, I have a place in Florida on the coast, okay. yeah, in, in the Panhandle. And I spent a lot of time there. So I'm, I divide my time between the two places, and I think one of the things that I, I like about uh, New Orleans is its location on the Gulf Coast, which I think it's a great... In the old days, it was part of the Florida Parish. That's right. You had the Florida parishes. Yeah, that so that so you're, still, you're still in Florida. Yeah, they're still referred that way, yes. too. Yeah, it's still referred to as the Florida Parish. But... Um, I came back to New Orleans because I think I had... Well, what do you mean you came back? Well, I came back... To, uh, let me rephrase that. I came, when I came back to the South, I came to New Orleans because I had always felt that 
if I did move back to the South, that would be the place. Uh, because it really isn't Southern in the typical sense. And it is a city. No, not, not like, not like other places, like I would say, uh, say like Atlanta is. But or, ATL uh, is, 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 is jumping and popping. It. it is. <laughs> it's hard to it pop is. It, so. but and it would be one of the places that at least began in a more uh, traditional Southern storyline. Uh, and uh, New Orleans has somewhat of a separate history. Yes, it's part of the American South, but it also has these really strong ties to the Caribbean and to the French and Spanish culture, which was the origin oh, yeah, Georgia culture. don't have yeah. Georgia doesn't have it. Okay. And none of, none of the rest of the South has that. Right. So that that's, is what that unique history and uh, the fact that New Orleans is known for its culture, for its music, for its food, for its architecture, in ways that uh, most other southern cities aren't. Memphis, for instance, is certainly known for music. And, um, uh, that, that's a but, did, but they come from the south, though, most of them. Well, some of them did, some of them came from other, other places, but it, but it happened there. Mm -hmm. And, it, it, and uh, most most of the people who made their name there, uh, you know, like B.B. King was from Indianola, from the Delta, but he went to, yeah, he went to Memphis to, uh, that's where he made it big initially. Yeah, Elvis Presley was from? Tupelo. Tupelo, yeah, Mississippi. Drove, but but, but yeah. lived in, in Memphis, uh, and uh, that's where he, that's where he settled once he became internationally known. Too, and he first he first recorded there. So, you know, M Memphis is one of those places that has a distinct history, like New Orleans, I would say. Um, but, but primarily, it's the music in Memphis. I think more than any other thing, uh, you can make the claim. Well, maybe food with barbecue—they're famous for that. Uh, and uh, it's, it's all right. What? It's all right. It's yeah, it's all right. But it's. Uh, uh, but it's really music to me. When I think of Memphis, I'm thinking of Sun Records, Beale Street, and all those musicians. Al Green. Everybody. Yeah. <laughs> Isaac Hayes, uh, all yeah, these guys. Yeah, Booker guys. T and the MGs. Oh, I mean, yeah. that was a, that was okay. a huge. Oh, you know, listen up my music. Yeah, you, play, you played the band. Okay. Yeah, I played yeah. the band. That's right. <laughs> right. And I certainly listened to a lot of it uh, because that was. Uh, now, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Uh, oh, Southern boy like you come out of small town. I can't say the name, but Georgia. <laughs> Call <it. laughs> Now, what, what kind of music were you listening to back then? Well, rock and roll. Rock okay. and roll and more. See, yeah. when I came of age, it was all British Invasion. But what, oh, what people that, don't oh, really that, think about, yeah, oh, go, yeah. go out. You can see it on YouTube. Okay. Go, go and see the original Rolling Stones performance on the Ed Sullivan Show. It was all covers. It was all covers of R&B. Uh, well, we know that's that. what they were. They were a cover band but, at that time. But, but you know, now Rich, now you, now you seem to be one of the kind of like uh, low key, subdued, like you say, kind of a little uh, introvert. Kind yeah, of, I'd say, say that. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, you enjoy culture. <laughs> you enjoy. I do. You enjoy that kind of that out of the box kind of. But you talk about your jerks. Yeah. You're talking about rock and roll music. Well, so, I, so, so you, you got to let us know how that, you, you from one dynamic to another now, so you, that's confusing. To well, something. I think that you, it's, it's easy to be sort of uh, introverted in, um, uh, in one aspect of your life, 
but you still enjoy the uh, opportunity to uh, uh, duck into a bar room and uh, have a drink at the bar and you're conversing with people that, you know, are strangers basically, but who share space with you. They're from the neighborhood or whatever. And so it provides that opportunity to interact in kind of a neutral space. Same thing with the clubs. You can go in, you can hear live music, you can do things in, in a casual way uh, that allows you to, to interact, not in a truly anonymous way, but you kind of, you kind of are, un unless, unless you're a regular or you are a musician or something like that in, in the clubs where everybody knows who you are. Otherwise, you're just there in, um, in a more anonymous way. And you're interacting in a way that in small towns you really can't. Everybody knows everybody in a small town, you know. Uh, and so you never have that opportunity to just uh, be able to be yourself. But in this setting where you're interacting with other people and you don't really know who they are exactly either unless, you know. Uh, I, I know, Rich. You kind of put me in the mind of one of them like CIA agents. Oh, <laughs> no, it's not like that. I think it's that. Uh, it, it's more the ability to, um, and, and many folks have commented on the, the, the city this way, that it does allow you to kind of reinvent yourself mm. and, and the upward mobility of, of, of uh, within society is facilitated by, the, by, by life in the city more so than in the small town where it's very difficult to reinvent yourself in a small town. Everybody, everybody knows not just who you are, they know who your parents were, they know who your grandparents were. You can't, uh, they've already decided who you are, you know, based on your history. You go to the city, you're anonymous, you can reinvent yourself in the image that, that you want to have. And many, many, countless people have done that, you know. Okay. That's one of the benefits of city life. And Ness, that's why you're so stuck on living in a large city, a bigger I city. I think so, yeah. That's a big part of the appeal to me. But, but at the same time, you like operating, what do they call that again? Off the grid. Okay, I kind of like to do that. Yeah, you know. Well, for one thing, if you want to be a good photographer and you want to photograph things in an unobtrusive way, you can't just come in and hold court over the environment. If you do, you're changing everything. You, I very much like to be sort of on the periphery watching and recording the action rather than being the center of attention in it. Well put. Yeah, that's, that's how you, for me, that's how I'm able to, to uh, function as a photographer. That, that's a you can't be the center of attention and photographing it at the same time. When, when you write your, your first book, Richard, you, that's, that's a great way to, uh -huh. <laughs> to capture that. That's a great phrase. It. Oh, yeah, man, that's, so. that was awesome. I mean, you know, you say you're on a perimeter, but you, 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 you watching what's it's happening. It's a way for me to belong right. without and, being in the center. But you're capturing what others, what you, what you, what, yeah. what, what, what you kind of 
put that which intrigues you because that's what you see. Yeah. You know, I can go there and see something totally different. But you capture what you see and bringing that to life and bringing it to a part, place where you hope others can see it and appreciate. And it got to be something dealing with. Yeah. Uh, well, and it has, it's important to have a little bit of a, t a detachment. If you're too close to the subject, you're not going to be very objective about it because it's, there's too much of you in it. Uh, it really helps. Like, I get the comment quite frequently, oh, you know, you've done all these books about Louisiana that, that are well uh, appreciated, but you're not from here. You know, how could you do that? <laughs> but it, it's, it's a, actually a little bit easier if you have that mm -hmm. level of detachment because now you're seeing it in a slightly different light. Like you have, you can have a great appreciation. I like as, that. As many, many I people like do. That. Look at how well-loved the food of Louisiana is. Now say it again. How, how well-loved the food in uh, Louisiana. I, I people from all, over, yeah. from all over comment about how great the food is. Well, the point of reference is, you know, they grew up on very different food. So you come here and you have a few meals and you can appreciate that difference. When, you, it's, you, when it's all you've ever had, it's kind of just, you take it for granted, you know? Mm -hmm. um, well, Rich, you must not appreciate the food you ain't put on a pound. <laughs> well, I've always been skinny. Uh, I'm not as I'm not as skinny as I once was uh, in my youth. Oh no, you look but, you look lean. Yeah. So, uh, but I still enjoy Louisiana food. That's for sure. <laughs> okay. I eat plenty of it. Trust me. <clears throat> no, but the perspective, uh, your insightfulness on on what you just said, I just have to reiterate how as you come at it from a photographer perspective, right? Mm -hmm. And. I guess I never would just just but it, articulate you know, it's the that same like for that. writers and journalists. Yeah, but I mean, you know, they, the same. but you you're the outsider of Louisiana. I am. I'm an outsider. And you come here and you see the culture now, mm -hmm. and you get emerged in it. But at the same time, you say, "Well, no, I love this, but let me stand back and and capture this here to show my some friends or people, and then it become much bigger than that. Like, oh, if they like it." Well, it, just, it, it right makes right your there. job a little bit easier. Now, you can't be totally ignorant of the subject. You've got to really learn about the, your subject and, and know its history and appreciate it. You, you, you can't, you know, just appear as a Martian from out of space and mm -hmm. be able to relate to it and understand it. So. But, and I say that only because we're now at a cultural moment where people think, well, you, you got to be in the tribe if you're going to tell the tribe story, mm. you know, and nobody else's viewpoint is valid. I think that's a mistake. It, it is important to have uh, both perspectives. Sometimes it is good to have that perspective of the person within the tribe who is, is uh, writing or photographing the tribe for other people to see. But sometimes that person is too close to it. They can't tell an objective story or they can't relate to what is so unique about the tribe because it, they're too close. In other words, 
you can get you can be too close to a subject to be able to tell it a story to pay to, to, to be able to tell the story properly that's that's basically like you saying that if I ask an average mother about their child they're gonna speak oh my child is my child is so that's good. right their and, perspective and you, you think you different. got a, you got your child is a bad it's bad you got a bad-ass child that's you, right but they but not to the but not to the mother not to the mother it, they, they it, have a unique perspective on that individual that could be a valuable perspective but you got to admit it's not objective it's not going to be objective and sometimes a certain dose of objectivity is important and it's easier to see things from the outside looking in sometimes uh, and particularly if you're relating it to a broader, a broader group um, now if you preach into the choir that's different and that that happens a lot and it's usually brought up as being a waste of time However, it isn't. It, it isn't always a waste of time uh, to preach to the choir. Uh, sometimes it's important for reinforcement and to uh, redirect things. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it, it takes all of it. And I just think right now in this moment, we're too caught up in trying to address the exclusions of the past that have not certain voices haven't had a chance to to be heard and so it's important to get those voices out but at the same time you should now exclude this whole other group that you're saying well no we don't we don't want to see your perspective on this subject we only want to see this this excluded voice have a chance to uh, tell their story so I think it, it really does, um, uh, you need both. You really do need both. And I think that the, um, if you look at musicians, so many great New Orleans musicians actually enriched their career, became better at what they did when they left New Orleans and performed for audiences outside of New Orleans and performed with musicians from other places as well. So it uh, it works all kinds of different ways. Well, well, that's what happened to you. You enrich your your own that's life. That's right. Yeah. In your yeah. in your profession. Yeah. By going to different places and having those. And I've, I've photographed, uh, you know, not just in Louisiana, but I photographed in Latin America and the Caribbean, and it's all been a val valuable experience to me to be able to see all these places and to understand the relationships. Between all those you know, places. <clears throat> I'm going to share this. I, I, I think I shared it to you already. What you're saying and what I'm hearing, <clears throat> like I said, from my perspective, yeah. uh, it's the same reason why I told you I wanted to interview you. Uh huh. Because so I. To saw, get another perspective on. Yeah, no, because you just had a. On some of the. Some of the uh, as someone who's from Louisiana, a lot of this is about you mm -hmm. and the culture that you grew up in coming from yeah. somebody who is not yeah. See, of and, that and, culture and, and, indigenously. And what, it, and what I saw was that people who was from, it's in that, immersed in that culture that look like you, they intentionally leave out the other people. 
you know, uh-huh. they intentionally, what, what else reason I can, I have another, another reason to believe that you intentionally done that. If you know they got 10 of us in the same area and three are left out and the three looked like me, that had to be. <laughs> that, yeah, that had to be. That was a dinner. Yeah, that yeah, was a it's probably dinner. not a coincidence. Yeah, and <clears throat> when I saw your work, uh-huh. had a chance to conversate with you. That's exactly what I saw, and I and I, I feel that though. You know, I, I, I hit I hit it I hit the nail on the head. You who you are who well, I, I thought hope you so. were. You have to tell the whole story. Yeah, you, are you can't who you tell were. a part of the story that. Otherwise, it's not it's not but, complete. But, but as you know, with this history of slavery, that's your, the story have, you only they only tell once. They I, I I finally a friend talked to me and going to a plantation, right? To visit uh-huh. the plantation, I had no interest, Richard, in going on no plantation, right? Yeah. But a friend of mine happened to go to the plantation, <laughs> and uh, I, I want to call a name of it. I'm, I'm gonna call a name. And I went, but it was one of the places open to the public. Went, yeah. Yeah. So we went to the big house, and they started downstairs in the kitchen. And the first thing they started talking about, uh, the, the people who lived there. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about the, the owner of the, the, owner plantation, of the plantation. Yeah. You know, gave their history, their story. Then they had to finally go to the kitchen, where we know the owner or the people lived there. They did not do what they cook it. So the lady started talking about how to use these burning wood burning areas to cook in, mm-hmm. and uh, and I had no clue it was part of the house. <laughs> you know, just when it was like a part of the house, it was just like yeah. right on the right to of the yeah. back of the house. Like, oh, I didn't know they cooked like in the house, kind of like almost in the house, but the fire went to the back. And it was talking about the enslaved people, like they was enjoying it, like. So I'm, you know, I'm listening because I didn't think I don't think my ancestors felt honored to be in here cooking. So I, that kind of perturbed me a little, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, <clears throat> so we went from the kitchen into the next level. It must be like a three or four level thing. And I heard 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 little about the people that actually worked there at that time. And I'm like, okay. So now we get to the third floor. It was the second floor, and we get to the third. The second floor talked about the children areas where the children lived at uh-huh. and what you know how that went. Then the next floor, they said. Uh, first of all, I learned something that was interesting. They went to the the the, in the room. They said, "Well, this was the master's bedroom here." I said, "I'll be there." All this time, I said, "I want the master bedroom." I thought it was because it was the largest room in the house. They said a mas- it was the master's bedroom. That's what they meant. Yeah. <laughs> it was the master who lived there, bedroom. But, you know, we have interpreted as the largest room in the yeah. house. I want the master's bedroom, right? Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah that's, that's, still a, that's still a term you can use in a real estate ad. Right. <laughs> you know, and we're not realizing that, oh, that's what it's mm-hmm. never tied it to. What, that's what they meant, the master. Right. right. And uh, so we then went outside. They started talking about you know, the people didn't, didn't know how to, you know, it was it was sugar cane, and one, it was cotton at one time, they were doing sugar cane. But they never gave the story of the people who done the work. Yeah. So Who were the majority of the people who was that the, lived there? Yeah, yeah, Vast the, majority. Probably 80%, 75 to 80%. Right? Kind of even higher even in higher. some cases. And I'm like, so my first trip to the a plantation to hear the story, I was turned off. Uh-huh. 
as being like my ancestors worked here, and they still don't get credit. And to this day, that's how the people who are well, part of that Well, fortunately, field. that is great. It's, it's slow. It's like molasses, but it is changing. And there are sites like Whitney that specifically address the, uh, the experience of the enslaved people and the, the contribution that they made. Um, and they had important they had important jobs. Enslaved people ran the sugar mill. That yeah, would be yeah, like yeah. being the head of a factory. Mm -hmm. uh, exactly right. And it was a complicated process. Not just that. And uh, the, they were manufacturing something. They were growing cane, but they were making sugar from it. So it was actually but a manufacturing not, not process. Not just that. They were. And, the, and these were the factory workers. Right. And they were the blacksmiths. You know, that's why they call them blacksmiths. They made the bricks they, and they, they did the carpentry. Day. They did a lot of the work on building those houses. But here's why I would commend you on going, even though it wasn't a pleasant experience because mm -hmm. you didn't get an objective tour. Mm -hmm. You got a one-sided tour. Based what you were saying. What you, you said. Yeah. I brought that up because you were yeah, speaking you on you that. You did get the whole story. But I think it's important because there is a huge, even though the, the terms of employment were totally unacceptable, there wait, is wait, a wait, lot wait. of black achievement there. The, the financial success of that endeavor was possible through their labor and the expertise that they had in, in what they were doing. And if you're into genealogy and knowing where your ancestors came from, if you have any African-American ancestry, it is going to trace to one of these sites because that was the region, reason for the forced migration to begin with. And it's going to go back to there. And that's not a pleasant history, but it, it is the history. And out of it, all the achievement that came out of it. But they're still on quick, they're still on, even to this day. They, they, they don't give the people, matter of fact, when they brought them here, they went and got them because they had that expertise. They didn't train them. They, 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 <laughs> they, they, they didn't train them. They already had the expertise. They needed the forced labor because right. there was no, there were nobody lining up for those jobs, you know. Right. Uh, and that was the way that they made it work. And it is was cruel, it's unacceptable, it is no longer legal, and uh, we all know that history of how that, that yeah. came to be, and it's a long tortured history to, to uh, the, 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 the means by which it was, it was finally, at long last, ended. So you, you do have the fact, that it's, it's an unavoidable fact, that for the enslaved, it's not a pretty story, mm -hmm. and it, it, it wasn't fun. I mean, it was, uh, but neither is farm work. I mean, uh, you know, my father was a peanut farmer. He died in a peanut field in August mm. uh, trying to bring in a crop. It was not, it's, farm labor has never been the kind of thing that, that people were just rushing out to do. Oh, let me get that hoe and, you know, get out in a hundred degree heat and the humidity and, and hoe that rope. Um, no, it was, it was uh, and, and there's also a very problematic history with sharecropping and tenant farming and all of that. I mean, 
agriculture does not have a good labor history mm -hmm. uh, at, at any point. Well, United States doesn't either, because now they, that, that the new law they call it, uh, which they done back in the days, which which they call slavery, is now called human trafficking. So United States yeah. went into the business way yeah, back right. then, but now they, you know they got a rule, a law against it now. Yeah, that's right. You know, after they, after so many have benefited from it, they, you know. They say, yeah. But I I think it's important for people to know that history, as oh, yeah. unpleasant as it is. They've got to understand what it was like for the forebears, both the enslavers and the enslaved need to know and understand and, and be real about now, that, that history. I'm asking you this question, because you seem to be a very, uh, very thoughtful person. You don't, you don't just speak off the cuff, first of all. But you seem to be—you not seen. You, you, I, mean, I got a feeling that uh, you you want to bring balance to everything. So it's like your pictures, like your work. Mm -hmm. It has to balance. You know, you know. I use the word angle at the beginning, but it has to balance. And when you speak, I can I hear when you speak in the you know everything. Want to you want to balance out? It has to. It can't all be one sided, and that's, so you do have a very uh, objective yeah. process. From a journalistic point. standpoint, yeah. I think it's important. There are, uh, and it's ending. But one of the the problems with Louisiana history is the way that the antebellum period is portrayed as that, those were the glory years. Yeah, the glory well, years. Glory years for, for who? Glory yeah. years for who? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And that's for the, a that, tiny and, portion. And that's the issue with the people in my community when, when Donald Trump says, make America great again, then you say, for who? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, that's, that's the deliver. That's, that's when you say, that's make, the, make America great again, like, for who? Well, that's, that's, yeah, it's, it's a term that a lot of people have a lot of problems with because it, it basically is insinuating that the ways of the past were superior and we need to go back to those. And that's, that's not the way to sell the future of this country. It just isn't. It's because you want you to... You, and and it's mean, myopic. Yeah. And it's false. Mm. There was greatness uh, in, in America, but there are a lot of problems too. We've got to figure out how to make America a better country. For all. For, yeah, for, mm -hmm. for everybody. And not great again, inferring that it was a certain way and we need to go back to that because it was a better way then. Because that's, that's not going to be that, that's not true because you know that's a false narrative mm -hmm. and I think that uh, that's my major problem with it and believe me I'm not alone in that in fact the, mm -hmm. um, the majority don't feel that way oh, okay. now that's, 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 that's I'm, I'm convinced of that yeah the, there's part of the problem is there's a significant minority who are willing to look the other way on it to get what they want. But um, that, uh, I, mean, I don't really believe that the majority of, of Americans want the country to go back to the way it was 
when uh, the South was segregated and uh, when uh, a lot of labor practices were unfair and just look at all the things that we have worked so hard so, to change for yeah. women, for, for minorities, for, for everyone, for the, for the poor, and, and the poor come in all stripes, mm -hmm. you know? They're, they're, there's not one group ethnically that, it, that poverty falls into. It crosses a lot of lines. And it's a, it's a huge problem right now, particularly in this country, because there's uh, uh, untold wealth in certain corners. And then there is just the direst kind of poverty that, that people don't think really well, should. Well, you think the, the, the old na na uh, narrative is, is true? First of all, it had nothing to do with Donald Trump. It has nothing to do with Joe Biden. It's those who actually run and control all this thing that the old divide and conquer. If you ever, if you get, if you, if if I get along with you, you get along with somebody else. You get along with the the native. You get along with this. Then you know you're gonna start. You're gonna be a little more objective for real then, because you open yourself up to everybody. Well, there's too much. There's too much division for sure, and at the political uh, level, there is a, too much of an us versus them mentality and not enough of, of coming together over uh, common cause I'm and common do, good. Do you think there's a bigger something something behind that that's want to keep it that way? Oh yeah, there's always entrenched interest. The people that are prospering under the okay. current system, okay. they I'm want saying. it to persevere forever. Because they're doing well. Because they're doing well. Why, why change anything? It's great. <laughs> I don't, I don't want it. They, they don't have the proper so empathy they, for the people they, that... They care less black, white, Mex, Hispanic. They, they, they care less. They benefit from all. Yeah. Well, yeah. that's... The, 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 and we've got to change that. It's got to work for everybody. Uh, or it, it, it's, it's ultimately going to fail for everybody. And I think that you've got to be willing... There's not enough but, thinking and conscious effort to address the problems and to fix fix things that are wrong. That's but, that's one of our political but, but problems. It seemed like but, to me you would stand to lose much more than I did because I never really benefited from it as a whole. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, you, you know. can't. You can always find um, uh, situations that are like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, you 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 can't go to. Uh, for instance, if you, if you want to get into race, you can't say, oh, well, Jay-Z's doing great. I mean, why change anything? I mean, he's, you can't let the exception define the rule. Yeah, but, but, but my community, you, I can point out five like that. <laughs> that's, and that's five out of a million. So, I mean, that's, yeah, well, yeah, you know, sure. yeah, so that's, that's not, yeah. know, that, don't, that don't weigh in, you know. Well, that's why you can't do that. Right. That's why you can't do that. Certainly, there are in this country people of virtually every race and background who have done well. But it's got to be pervasive. It can't just be the, the two or three out of millions, like you say. Now, that, I'm, I'm asking this question so. here. Now, let, let's, we're going to take your, your, uh, your skills, your ability, your photography, your ability to, your insightfulness to another level right now. Yeah. 
Well, I hope so. <laughs> and I do have to say that one of the, the most politic, one of the most politically astute people in terms of, you know, kind of calling it like it is, that I have met in Louisiana is uh, uh, General Honoré. Oh, you had yeah. a chance to meet the general? I, I met him. Yeah, oh, yeah, I met him and uh, and photographed him for the uh, New Roads and Old Rivers, which we talked mm -hmm. about, and I've, I've heard him talk. He don't play. He doesn't, he, have, he doesn't have any interest in running for the political office because he realizes that what he feels like needs to be done, the political will is not there. Right. He would not, yeah. he, he would he, have great he, difficulty. He'll stay, he'll stay frustrated. That's right. He would have, his, he, 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 he realizes that there's no way his agenda could ever come to fruition in a state like Louisiana. But I think he's on top. He's one person who's really on top of where the problems yeah, yeah. lie. <clears throat> now, during the COVID, there was this new thing where people are saying that, okay, it's almost like in 1999 when the world's supposed to, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. what, 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 what that's supposed to happen in 1999? Oh, we're going to have a complete, yeah, all the computers were going to stop working. And <clears throat> we're doing the COVID. Technology and, was going to collapse. And they said it's, everything's supposed to reset. Everything's supposed to reset now. Uh -huh. And uh, to the new world order, you you got any any thoughts, any any views on that? Well, you know, so pe I, people say it's just cons conspiracy theory. So we go, we go, we go, we go. I don't know. I don't have much to say about COVID other than it did. The the thing that I found most problematic is all the solutions offered by political leaders were things that would only work for upper middle class families, <laughs> you know. Uh, it's, it, it wasn't feasible to, to, okay, if you're the cashier at Walmart, how are you gonna work from home? Okay, if, if you're in a large family living in uh, half a shotgun double, how are you going to uh, isolate effectively? from everybody else. And so um, I think you, you kind of saw the problems with healthcare delivery, the disparity between uh, working people and the, the, the folks that had the ability to work from home and kind of isolate themselves from the problem. I don't know if we got that lesson that essential workers were all the people that were doing the jobs at, there, there, at the low end of the spectrum. There was essential workers. <laughs> they were, they were, yeah, those are the essential workers, but are they being considered essential when it comes to their pay and other things? I would like to think that there's some lessons to be learned from that. Uh, I don't know that that, that has happened, but uh, it, it certainly wasn't lost on me that you know, the, the people that are higher up in the pecking order were able to follow the marching orders without having their lives fall apart uh, as, as much as those people on the low end who are having to go in and at minimum wage risk getting COVID, maybe dying from COVID uh, because the job that they have to do required it. And the, 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 Actually, most people fell into that rank. In other words, they couldn't work from home. I think the majority of people 
had to go in if they were going to do their job, whether that's delivering packages for UPS or. or I'll make this question here. So during the time of COVID, you couldn't go take pictures there. Oh, I did. I mean, I, I was able to do what I do uh, pretty much um, without too much restriction. There were a lot of things that I would like to have been able to do that you couldn't do because things were closed and, and the rules were different and, and all that kind of thing. So it impacted me that way. But in terms of uh, my ability to do, to work on projects and, and to do things, I don't go into a corporate office where I got a lot of employees okay. around me or anything like that. I do work from home every day. <laughs> That's all I ever do. It's not like, like a man of leisure. Uh, well, no, it's, it's, uh, I live and work in the space that we're in right now. So uh, it's, uh, that's kind of just what I had always done. So through luck of the draw, I did not get impacted nearly so much as so many other people. And, and really, probably the, 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 the worst draw, so to speak, were look at the nurses uh, and, and doctors who are not just having to go into work, but they're having to go into work to take care of people who have COVID and they're getting exposed to it uh, every day. And uh, there, was, there was a lot of stress put on the healthcare deliverer of, 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 uh, of the country because they were in crisis mode 24 seven. And uh, I, I I don't know that the country at large is as appreciative as they should be of, of, of that effort, whether it's the person who is checking, checking them out at, at the grocery store or uh, the nurse who's taking care of some friend or relative who has COVID, that kind of thing. I don't, I don't know that we've ever... Uh, come to the point of really appreciating and thanking those people who made those personal sacrifices all through the crisis and got us to the point where we're at now. COVID's certainly not over, but it's not the life or death situation that it was at the, at the beginning. Rich, you might need to be, you might, might need to start writing the speeches for the mayor and the president. You do a great <laughs> job. <laughs> Oh, well, I don't know about that, but I, 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 I think that you know, you know, to uh, capture the people that are important that get left out a lot. So that's yeah, that's, we, 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 t we take too much for granted in this country. Mm. That's my observation. I don't think that's a politically bankable <laughs> observation, but I think it's true. We take too much for granted and that we should uh, stop and realize the sacrifices that, that that people make for us to enjoy the lives that we have. And uh, you see, it takes everybody. It does take everybody. And everybody's role should be appreciated and rewarded. Appreciated uh, and rewarded. And rewarded, commensurate to what they are, to what they're doing, to, to uh, help us all along and have the life and enjoy the prosperity that we do have. And that prosperity is not equally divided as it should be, okay. that's for sure. And yeah. we trick, everybody talks about it, nobody has the political will to fix that. 
you know, I think a lot of things can be fixed, but we all have to work in unison. Yeah. Just like people, just the other day I heard them complaining about, you know, airplane rates are sky high. Well, we, if people don't fly for a week, we can change that. Yeah. <laughs> if we all just work together, you, yeah. we all stop flying for one week. Watch what go happen. They yeah. go adjust everything to Well, it, it, ha it happened during COVID. And, yeah. and the airlines and lost went down billions. They, but they lose the money because the federal government still paid them off. 20, I know they got they 20, got all those twenty subsidies. billion apiece. So yeah. I mean, yeah, I forgot how much that was. So they got. Yeah, they it was lose. that that really that whole system. That's another part of the inequity. It really yeah. uh, uh, take shafted take. a lot of small businesses yeah. that didn't get their fair share. The large corporations did. Took it all. The, the, the small little mom and pop businesses didn't get it. Took it all. To the same degree. Now, before we shut this thing down, I want to know what is next on the horizon for Richard Sexton? Well, I've got uh, a, a couple of ancient projects. During COVID, during COVID. You ain't got to call yourself ancient. Well, it is. It's, uh, it's half, from half a century ago almost. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I, during COVID, I did uh, a, a little book that I'm self-publishing that's a photographic memoir. It's how I got started in photography. Mm. So that's coming out in the spring of 2023. Also, the very first book that I did, New Orleans Elegance and Decadence, on, when I came to Louisiana, that went out of print during COVID. So I uh, got a new publisher, uh, uh, Schiffer Publishing, is coming out with a new edition of that book in spring of 23. Well, you got it going on. So yeah. I'm, I'm sort of trying, like everybody else, I'm trying to make my way out of the COVID hibernation and, and with all start up with some and new all things. that's part of reinventing yourself, too. Yeah, it is. It is. I mean, because you know you're thinking outside the box again. That's right. You know, you had to keep your you had to keep your powder dry during COVID because you couldn't have openings. You know, the event in Point Capri Parish that was one of the first things oh, that, okay. that happened after when you could get together again and you could. Oh, that, well, that's why you were so nice to me, then. you was glad to be out. I right? was glad to be out and seeing people again. Okay. Uh, and uh, and also, you know, one of the great. Uh, opportunities for me is during that project I got to meet and photograph Ernest and Diane Gaines and I, I, so I, you, you I got to meet him before he passed on oh yeah yeah and I photographed okay. him the photograph of him in the book is one that I took for that project oh. and he his health was failing then and that was several years ago so uh, but you was able to I was able to meet him and I do I really do think and I'm, I'm not just uh, saying this because uh, it's somebody that I knew and met on account of that project. But I felt like uh, his book, A Lesson Before Dying, is really, that's the best book on race that I've ever read uh, by an American author. And hmm. it's by a Louisiana author. Uh, and Ernest Gaines is that author. And I think that's a book everybody should read. He's more famous for the autobiography of Miss Jane Pitt. But A Lesson Before Dying is just an incredible work of literature. And I learned, they, I, I learned this on the day that, that, that um, they commemorated the plaque. It was one vote short of winning the Pulitzer Prize. One vote. He lost by one vote. So I think that's unfortunate. But that's how close it came to, to that achievement. So. One. I think we should conclude with that. <laughs> that that's a high note. Huh? <laughs> that is, uh, yeah. 
That, that, that would be my one thing to say. Read that book if you haven't. And also, you got a chance to share your, your things that you got up and coming, and yes. that's going to be. Yeah. But also, I just want to thank you for allowing me to come into your home. I mean, it's been a pleasure. I, I read you right. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, it's been my pleasure, too. No. I've enjoyed the conversation, and I hope it helps the cause. Oh, no, you you, you've, you must went much deeper than I. We wouldn't prepare for this here. So, uh-huh. I mean, well. I just thought we were going to just talk about art, but you got you, you are much more than just Well, uh, you know, the, the focus of a good deal of what I have done has been Louisiana and its history and its people. And so I... That's, that's important to me. Your subject should always be important to me. Don't photograph things you don't care about. Mm. Photograph the things you do. I, I, so somewhere inside of you, 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 you are an activist, all right? That's right. And you, that's right. And I'm a, what you, what you call it, an activist now? I don't know what you call <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, activist, yeah. Because. But look, everybody should wish for a better world. But I mean, you're willing to do what you can then. That's to, right. To help the everybody, cause. everybody should wish for a better so world. I'm saying to let you, I'm saying to let you know that I'm be calling upon you. Okay. <laughs> to, be, to get to on the front line. I can now. help. Yeah. You no, know, I appreciate it doing. Uh, I, I mean, I learned a lot about you, and I just love, I love your heart, your spirit, uh, for for community, people, you know, just righteousness. Want to do the right thing. Yeah. And that's you know. I I appreciate that. Not, you're not one dimension at much. all. So thank you for being part of Count Time. Thank you for being here today. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right. Thank you again for being part of Countdown. You bet. Man can shackle the hand. Man can shackle the feet. But only you can shackle the mind. The mind is free to travel wherever you dare to take it. Welcome to Countdown Podcast.